Well, hello, Acquired LPs. Welcome to an episode that is very, very near and dear to my heart. We have a special guest, Matt McBrady. Welcome to the LP show. So great to have you here on Acquired. Great to be here, Ben. It's uh, always great to see you, even if it is virtual in this uh, you know, new world of ours that uh, we may be stuck in for a little while longer, courtesy of Delta, although we, we all hope not. Hey, hybrid. Hybrid is great. Hybrid, yes. Well, by way of background, so I know Matt because we've worked together for a good part of last year on a PSL project. LPs, like you are in for a treat today. Matt is my go-to person to try and understand all things macroeconomics, Federal Reserve, monetary policy, anything in that category. He's been working on this stuff for over 25 years. He actually worked in President Bill Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors in 1998 directly for Janet Yellen. You worked, Matt, in the U.S. Department of the Treasury in 99 and 2000 under Tim Geithner, who was then the Deputy Treasury Secretary. Is that right? Yep. I was Deputy. And then uh, BlackRock, you ran the multi-strategy head fund. You've played in sort of the operating world where you currently sit on the board of, is the company named Taser or Axon these days? It's Axon these days. Taser is still the brand name of the most well-known kind of flagship product that conducted energy weapon. Got it. And also you helped get a Quantive off the ground in like 98, 99 running analytics there. Is that right? Yeah. You know, our mutual friend, Mike Galgan and I actually came up with a business model when we uh, were running along the uh, Charles River. And as an ex-football player, I swore I would never run for pleasure, but I really liked Mike's company and he really liked to run. So I essentially had no choice. <laughs> and we kept running farther and farther because we were having great conversations. And, you know, before you knew it, what had come out was the fundamental idea behind Avenue A. And then also the realization that, hey, we might as well run the marathon because we're running like 15 <laughs> or 16 miles. So um, two things I never thought I would do before meeting Mike, one found a tech company, especially back then, and, and two run a marathon, and I got a chance to do both. It's awesome. It's awesome. Well, you talking about the Charles River brings me to my last bullet point in your bio. You, you have a PhD in business economics from Harvard, and you currently teach at the Darden Graduate School of Business at the University of Virginia. So I think you pretty much have seen every angle of everything we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I guess I don't stay put very long intellectually or career-wise, so I kept sort of trying different things. And if there is a value to having a perspective as a policymaker, as an academic, as a private equity guy, as a hedge fund guy, and as a, an entrepreneur and uh, armchair angel investor and board member, but then I think I'm the one who actually really summarizes that value. If there's no value, and that's just a sign of the fact that ADD people can be really successful <laughs> in lots of different capacities, then maybe I'm proof positive of that claim too. I love it. I got to ask, have you seen the meme on Twitter of the deep fake video of Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell and Ben Bernanke singing the, the Rick Roll song, Never Gonna Give You Up? <laughs> no, I oh, haven't. We got to send it to you like after I this. We'll put it in the to. show notes. This is the best thing on the okay. internet in 2021. Oh, very nice. I can't wait to see it. Well, I wanted to start this with, we're going to do sort of a Q&A with Matt here. And the idea for this spawned from the fact that Matt is in a text group with a bunch of his friends where people will throw in a thorny question about something going on in the macroeconomic world and policymaking. And Matt is like very good at sort of distilling these plain English answers. So Matt, I want to start with a very general question for you, kind of in, in definitions. So what 
is the money supply. And when people have heard things like M1 and M2, what are those? <laughs> well, I'd say uh, M1 and M2 are great examples of why you rarely ever see a trained economist as either a chief marketing officer or a chief communications officer. <laughs> because as a species, we tend to have a knack for making really complex things seem really simple. On the other hand, we're pretty good at making really simple things seem really complex. So, you know, everybody knows what money is. I mean, even, even my nine year old niece knows what money is, is what she gets when she gets her allowance and she can't wait to go spend it. It's usually kind of on candy and sometimes little toys that she figures out how to play games with and, and beat me every time that she goes me into playing with her. And so that money, the cash in the hand that she uses to spend stuff is M1. And, you know, on the other hand, she also, when she's occasionally good enough to, uh, to qualify for points for good behavior, understands that points translate every two weeks into cash that she then gets to spend. So when she behaves well and she gets those points, that's M2. It's not more complicated than that because ultimately that's what the Fed's been tracking since well well over a hundred years. Although interestingly, the the St. Louis Fed stopped tracking some measures of it, and so M one is just a representation of currency coins, notes. And as we all know, things are changing. When's the last time you spent any money with those? It also includes things like, you know, like our savings deposits, our checking deposits, anything that can be readily turned to cash. And the really important kind of reason that that's distinguished is everything purchased or sold in the economy, which ultimately becomes the GDP, is done with cash at the end of the day. And so then M2 is the stuff that can most quickly become cash, but isn't quite cash because you couldn't use it right now today to buy something. And then there's an M3, and there used to be an MZM that the St. Louis Fed recently retired, sort of the attempt to kind of track over time. You know, and so this is literally just a way of kind of tracking things that can be used to purchase stuff or things that will readily be used to turn into things that can be used to purchase stuff. So just to test my understanding, like a dollar bill that I'm holding in my hand right now, I'll just pull one off my, my wallet here. I'm amazed you have a dollar bill in your wallet. That's so old school. <laughs> this 50 right here is, is M1. Yes, that is M1. That is M1. I don't have a stock certificate here in front of me, but I just recently bought some Spotify. What is that? Spotify is not going to be in the money supply, which is interesting because you could actually readily turn it to cash, we know, by selling. It's very, very liquid. But given the fact that it is a security that's outside of the use for immediate transactions, that's not that's not included. Would like a T-bill be like uh, M2? Great question. A T-bill held by someone, you know, as owning the bill themselves in your brokerage account would not. However, money market funds do count. They count in a lot of them actually anyway count in, in M2 because money market funds actually have got immediate settlement. So you can actually turn in a claim and you're guaranteed to get your $1 back. That's you know, one of the things that terrified the world in 2008 is when money markets started breaking the buck. Uh, but that would be a, a whole different podcast episode. So for the layman, is it useful to really think about the difference between M1 and M2? Or is it more useful to just sum them and say, I just want to think about M1 and M2 together total as the money supply. Yep. You are asking exactly the right question. And if you didn't, I was going to take us there next, which is like, why on earth 
do economists and did the the Fed and did the St. Louis Fed take a huge role historically in tracking this stuff? And it's because different measures, usually the aggregate measure, uh, consistent with your intuition of money supply, which is summing up all of these things, tended to correspond really closely with inflation um, or more directly with the aggregate GDP, gross GDP, makes sense, right? Because as I started off by saying, even my you know my nine year old niece knows that what money is is that's it's the thing you buy stuff with, and so if you kind of track good enough data on the total amount of things to buy stuff, that should correspond to the total value of stuff bought, and so that's why it was all tracked. But interestingly, and I think we're going to come back to this when we start really getting more into the meat of does any of this stuff work anymore or matter anymore, is the relationships that were historically very strong really started breaking down around 2000. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why St. Louis Fed's no longer tracking some of the stuff, because why bother? The relationships really aren't there that used to be there. So is there like a percentage of our total economy that it's healthy to have in the money supply? Or should the money supply sort of match one-to-one -one the entire value of, I don't know if it's like America's assets or America's GDP, what the right comparison would be, but is there any sort of ratio we try and maintain? Yeah, this is another fantastic question, and it'll sort of get us probably to what we want to talk about next, which is kind of how, how and why monetary policy works, and we'll eventually get to why it's profoundly different today and has been ever since the advent of large-scale QE, you know, over 10 years ago in the U.S. and around 10 years ago in the U.S. and almost 20 years ago in, in Japan. So, you know, for kind of ever leading up to 2008, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, which is a good measure of like the sum total of at least the, you know, the kind of the, the direct stuff in the economy that, that the Fed is kind of managing as money supply then you saw it was about $800 billion. And as we now know, um, the Fed is currently adding an additional $120 billion every month to its balance sheet by buying securities. So that gives you a scope of how much things have changed. And so for a long time, it was firmly held belief among economists that you really didn't want to monkey around with the overall size of the Fed's balance sheet. And instead, monetary policy was conducted through, you know, an entirely different channel called open market operations that I'm sure we'll get into when we, you know, get into some of the nuts and bolts of how all this stuff works. So, you know, it is very intuitive to think that there should be a relationship between money and the overall size of the economy. And there was, in fact, for a very, very long time, as we talked about, because it corresponded very nicely to the size of GDP, you know, the aggregate measures of money. Um, and, you know, now, however, with the standard relationships breaking down because I think the economy has just changed in a profound way. It's less clear whether it really makes any difference at all. This is great. We got to ask, like, what's changed? This requires a little bit of a, a sort of walk down memory lane and a bit of the uh, the sort of simple explanations that really underpin most of everything that can be understood. And, you know, and really to kind of understand what's changed, we have to go back to sort of why monetary policy works so well for so long. And when we go back to that, the simple starting point is in a world that really described the early part of the 20th century, and actually, frankly, most of the 20th century, all the way up through, you know, at least through the 1990s in the US when, you know, the end of the 1990s when we repealed Glass-Steagall, most of the purchasing power in the economy really was people who were holding currency 
or people who had their, you know, their money in a bank, or people who could borrow money from a bank. So as long as banks were kind of the center of the financial universe, then it makes a whole lot of sense that by controlling the sum total of this stuff called money that banks had access to, you could do a really good job of controlling the aggregate amount of purchasing power. And that was the story of the beginning of the Fed and the beginning, frankly, of modern sort of fractional reserve banking. But that story began in a really inglorious way in the turn of the century and even before with just series of bank panics after bank panics after bank panics because banks were allowed to be state chartered. Some of them were independent. They could really just create these pieces of paper saying IOU. And this was like an IOU. And if you're a reputable bank, other banks would take it. And so, you know, that was money just like it is today, but it was kind of a free for all. And when just like in It's a Wonderful Life, someone got nervous, it's like that tells you all you need to know about central banking history and monetary policy theory was, you know, it's really kind of orchestrated around this notion of these fragile banks that can fail. Back then, what you needed was some type of an entity, which is kind of where the Fed came from, that could extend credit to banks when it's like, oh boy, everyone's really nervous that bad bank A is going to fail. Maybe we can choose to let that sucker go, but we can't allow that to trigger a panic around all the other banks. Um, and so somebody's going to step in and, and say- And we got to protect the customers of that bank. Yep. And so the customer protection came in 1933 with the creation of the FDIC. And that was all part of the, the Glass-Steagall Act, which was the one repealed at the end of the 90s when, hmm, coincidentally, a couple of years later, those relationships broke down between money and, and uh, the aggregate purchasing power of the GDP that's observed um, in a subsequent period of time. I don't think about it much in these terms. As always, this is not financial investment advice on the show, but like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm trying to keep as much of my wealth, like not in banks as possible, like <laughs> not because I hate banks, but I'm just like, you know, it's better elsewhere, right? Like why bother? Yeah, yeah, no. In fact, this is basically um, a bit scattershot, and it'll come, it'll make more sense if we kind of get through how the the systems evolve. But since banks right now really don't make loans anymore, which is one of the reasons why they are not the sort of central feature in kind of controlling the extension of purchasing power into the economy, because banks right now are really just giant securitization machines, which means you know they don't actually make loans for very long at all. They warehouse stuff, they put it into a big bundle and they sell it off to the securitization markets. I mean, that's stuff I used to play in in my hedge fund days. So you're saying banks, they basically don't carry a big debt load on their balance sheet in the way that they sort of classically always have because they don't actually own the debt that they're lending out. They repackage that and quickly sell it off. Yeah, rather than the debt load, the asset load. So in the, in the old days, it was just loan and hold or originate and hold banking. That was like, you know, I had loan officers, they went around and they decided, you, Ben, are worthy, you know, Ben Incorporated are worthy of a loan and I'm going to give you one and I'm going to keep it on my balance sheet and I'm going to check up on you every, you know, every month, every quarter, every year. And as long as you don't violate my covenants, you're going to keep it and I'll give you more loans. And if you want to expand, I'll give you an even bigger loan. That was the world in which monetary policy makes a lot of sense the way that we've always done on it because if you controlled the amount of money banks had to lend, then more Ben Inks would get bigger loans and build more factories to 
you know, make more, you know, I guess, widget insights. More podcast episodes. <laughs> yes, more podcast episodes. And now, on the other hand, the securitization market, it's literally, let's, let's find a thousand Ben Inks. Let's make short-term loans to them, sort of I'll extend the money to them, but I'm expecting to then get that right back because I'm going to take a package of that and I'm going to send it, sell it to the markets, get the money back, and it's rinse, lather, repeat, reload, just keep, keep going, keep going, keep going. So you need enough capital to sort of keep that machine going. And we can't afford to have that machine stop. That was what happened when, when Lehman went under in 2008. But, you know, the extension of more cash into the banks who are doing this is not a first order driver of having them make more loans and get more securitizations done. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter before we get to that point in history i want to hear a little bit more about the history of the fed so you talked about the turn of the century some runs on the bank you know a lot of like instability the fed is older than 1900 right or is it a fairly recent innovation it's not no it's really interesting so the you know probably um, in fairness i would say the the motivation for a fed actually first probably took hold or started to roost in 1893, which was a really nasty depression. It was actually what we thought would be the worst depression we could ever have until we had the Great Depression. And it was finally enough to get the, you know, the largely rural, like 
call themselves progressives at the time to get over their sort of fear and hatred of the the moneyed, centralized, moneyed, powered interests of the Eastern cities. I mean, this is just like American history stuff, like at its core. And finally, it was like, man, we can't afford to keep having these bank panics that trigger large scale recessions and now a depression, for God's sake. We got to do something. But then as soon as the economy started booming again, it's short memory syndrome. You know, the, the different political powers would come in and go, nope, not a priority. You need to have another one. And sort of 1907, there was another big bank panic. And, you know, once again, JP Morgan had to come in and literally lend money to the banks to sort of save the American economy. Like JP Morgan, the guy. The guy, back when he was <laughs> yeah. a financier. He had a bank, of course, and it's still the the same bank that still bears his name today. So a proud history for that institution. So, you know, that was kind of the last straw where it was like, finally, everyone got together. And then there was just a bunch of political wrangling over what it was going to look like and how it was going to be shaped. And then finally, years later, the Federal Reserve Act finally came out sort of five or six years after that. And then the Federal Reserve Act was what gave us, you know, what we still see as the backbone of the Fed today, which is a decentralized central bank. We don't have a single building like the Bank of England with a big sort of monolithic building. We've got the 12 regional banks that are all kind of coordinated by the Fed Board of Governors, which is here in, in DC, not far from my home. And, you know, its job originally was literally to have these banks scattered throughout the country to make the loans to, you know, Jimmy Stewart's It's a Wonderful Life banks. Whenever those banks actually ran into panics, it was really pretty neat. And back then the aha was, ah, all right, if the banking system collapses, purchasing power collapses for exactly the same reason you see in the movie. Purchasing power being like Americans can't buy stuff because they don't have any money because the bank that- The bank just went away. Like, the wait, bank wait where a they second. were keeping their money lost their money. Lost the money, exactly. And, and it's this wonderful reflexive thing, which is why you can't allow banking systems to collapse because the bank panic can actually make good assets be bad assets because all of a sudden if they're illiquid, but there's nothing wrong with them, then there's a bank panic. Everyone basically says, shoot, I got to sell these assets. There's no way to buy the assets too. The values go down. People lose their jobs because there's no purchasing power. And then all of a sudden firms that were going to pay their loans back can't pay their loans back. So that was the beginning of the Fed. And then the evolution of the Fed is what's been really pretty neat as well. It was literally as as kind of globalization happened, ironically through World War One originally, when the bank started first extending or accepting bankers' acceptances to, you know, to support international trade, um, it's gradually kind of figured out better ways to do it, saying, huh, my job is to make sure credit flows in the economy, whether it's wartime, bank panic time, anything else. And that means I, the 12 regional Federal Reserve banks, have got to be willing to actually bite my, my lip a little bit and, and sort of jump into the, into the abyss and say, I'm going to lend when things get scary and then keep the system going. Um, and then eventually out of that, you know, sort of a few years later, um, through uh, the, the actions of a, a really insightful central banker from the central banker from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, open market operations were created when he said, huh, rather than just actually giving credit to banks, maybe another way I can extend more purchasing power in the economy is to buy government bonds. Hmm. Let's give that a shot. Uh, so this was the beginning of the linking of monetary policy with fiscal policy. 
Yes, yes. Although not yet fiscal policy, because those were government bonds that already existed. But you're kind of getting us right in the direction of kind of what modern monetary theory is all about. And we'll get there toward the end of the episode, I know. How did the Fed, in its original incarnation, how did it have money to lend to banks if it wasn't originating from the federal government? Where'd the money come from? Yeah, it came from, it had the ability to create money. Because remember, we went back and said money is cash and currency. That's the easy stuff. That's the stuff that my niece really understands. But it's also bank deposits. And where do you think all the banks put their money? In the Federal Reserve. And so whenever the Federal Reserve wants to actually give credit to a bank, all it does is make a book entry transaction. It's like literally, hey, guess what? Ben Bank. You know, you now have an additional $100 million to spend. I've just given it to you. It's on deposit in your account. And then poof, money comes out of nowhere. And by the way, it still works that way. <laughs> okay, so there's an innovation that suddenly now the Fed, instead of just doing deals with all the banks who have these bank charters, there's now another participant in the system, the federal government. How's that work? No, federal government's actually sort of not in the Federal Reserve system. The federal government's on the other side. That's fiscal policy. And the, you know, in the central bank, that's monetary policy. And so never the two shall mix until we get to modern monetary theory and the actual actions of the last couple of years, even though it hasn't been explicitly done with, with explicit acknowledgement that it's being motivated by those principles. So historically, the government's just a totally different actor. It's out on the side basically saying, hey, I'm raising taxes, I'm spending money. Sometimes I run a deficit when I spend more than I'm raising in taxes. Other times I have a surplus when I raise more in taxes than I spend. I try to keep books about balanced. You know, that's going to have impacts on the economy that are, you know, maybe analogous in some cases to monetary policy. But, you know, think of monetary policy, especially back in the early days where it was being created. It was not a fine-tune the economy kind of exercise. It was keep banks from going bust. And then it really expanded from keep banks from going bust into more creative stuff with World War I, when it was like, we need to finance the war effort in Europe. We're not yet in it. And we can do that because you know our productive resources are still fully functioning. And in Europe, they're getting bombed and sort of shut down. So, But the way we can do that is we got to somehow enable the companies that are making stuff in the U.S., to get cash to make stuff when it's going to be a while to get it from Europe. And in fact, the way things used to work back there, or what I referenced earlier, these bankers' acceptances. So a European bank would say on behalf of a buyer of American bullets or guns or whatever we were selling back then, or, or provisions and supplies, would say, you know, hey, here's a good IOU. Trust me, I will pay you as soon as the goods get there, but it's going to take a while to ship them. So they would get this thing called an IOU, those bankers' acceptance, and companies would be like, what the hell am I going to do with this? I can't pay my employees with this. So they would go to their bank, and their bank would likewise kind of go, well, what am I going to do with this? I'm not going to get paid for five or six months. Okay, I guess I'll give you some money, but it's going to be at a really high rate. And then the Federal Reserve back then, banks started saying, you know what? I'll take those. I'll take those and then I will give the bank credit and I'll give the bank credit on better terms right now. And so that lowered the price of financing and increased the ability to export to, you know, to support the war effort. So 
Yeah, pretty neat. I mean, it's like it's amazing how much of the Fed, the evolution of the Fed has really been driven by just creatively adapting to the demands of the day to keep the flow of credit flowing. The Fed is like a they're like cap chaser pipe for uh, software companies today. They're like, oh, you've got these forward, you know, SaaS revenue contracts. Like, I know you're going to get that money. Uh, I'll take those contracts and I'll give you the money. <laughs> or, exactly. or Stripe is literally watching all of your payment flows and can dynamically send you an email that's like, by the way, we just approved you for this line of credit. Let us know if you want it because we have underwritten in real time based on your source of truth data. It's crazy this stuff that's happening. You know, what's so cool about that, guys, too, is that's arguably why this monetary policy doesn't work anymore. I mean, I'll tip my hand. I guess I, I probably shouldn't say this on, on an episode. I may request you guys pull this down because I may go go to work for the Fed at some stage. I mean, I do, and I do know a lot of folks there and I'm not sort of disparaging any of their efforts. I'm just saying, you know, in a world where if you kind of go back to first principles from the beginning, again, keep it simple, the simple story of, you know, when the Fed worked really well, it was when banks were the first order driver of the purchasing capacity for every agent in an economy a firm, a person, you know, like ultimately that's just not the case because now there's so many different ways to get money that have nothing to do with the conventional banking system, or at least they need to be supported by a healthy one because that's where we store our money and we make our payments back and forth. But in terms of actually a source of borrowing, it's just like, I just don't see that being important anymore. To try and pare it back, my understanding, because the banks aren't the one who hold the risk. There's lots of participants in the ecosystem now who are willing to bear risk. Yeah. If you and your listeners have heard the term shadow banks, yes. I mean, that's a, it's kind of a murky sort of, you know, rather more exotic probably than it deserves to be sounding, sounding term. But it, it was originally coined to, you know, to refer to a lot of the securitization markets that were actually creating short-term loans to companies through, you know, securitizations and, you know, commercial paper and things like that that were, you know, held by other entities other than banks. Like, huh, interesting. These are shadow banks. So that's what Captase, Pipe, Stripe, like, you know, Square, all these companies are doing. Yep. Yep. And it's interesting because ultimately when you can get cash or something you can finance out of those, again, it's just another source of generating purchasing power, which is not really responding to conventional monetary policy. All right. So tie everything you just walked us through to your statement at the top of the episode that there's an extra 120 billion of debt every month. How does that mechanically happen? So the mechanics, since the, the Fed provided exceptional stimulus in COVID, and that's the big debate on when's taper going to start. And, you know, is it going to start in September? As soon as September, is it going to be November? Is it going to be next year? And we've seen a few different episodes of when the Fed started tapering, trying to taper its support, not ending in, a, in pretty terms for markets. It's always seemed to increase volatility and cause some really pretty sharp, nasty, you know, mini corrections before the Fed goes, ah, just kidding. I guess I'll stick with it. But, <laughs> um, but the extra 120 is literally the Fed's commitment to buy additional securities from the market that it went into and you know and it's through its series of programs last year every single month and so every month just like we said before just like in the old and it's a wonderful life world where it's like ben bank inc needed actually credit the hundred million dollars of credit to stave off you know nervous customers and reassure them in a bank panic and it just said you know what ben hey guess what i've just increased your your you know your account here they effectively do the same thing now they go to the dealer banks for the securities that they're buying. And they say, you know, guess what? I'd like some securities. So they take the securities, pull them out of the market, and they credit the dealer bank with just newly created dollars in that, in that dealer bank's account. So the dealer bank gets paid for it and 
in in the markets writ large, every month now there's 120 billion of extra buying pressure yeah. from the Fed. Yeah. From the Fed. You know, and boy, if you any of your, you know, your listeners are wondering kind of why is it the valuations keep running every single month for companies at uh, at lower and lower levels of development and you know, two guys, a dog who's cute enough and and is friendly and and a good pitch book is getting a twenty million dollar pre money valuation, then I have a pretty simple answer to that. There's just a heck of a lot of new purchasing power being created and it's not purchasing new goods and services. It's it's going right into capital markets. Okay, so the Fed is now holding all this stuff. Like, I, I don't actually know the right words for this $120 billion of stuff. Yeah, Securities. what did they do with that? Why isn't it a bad thing? Give me the bull case and the bear case. Let's try and do both sides of this argument. Is it a bad thing that the Fed is now the owner of all this stuff? And what is the stuff? Let me give you a high-level answer and then say it's going to make a lot more sense if we back up a little bit. We've talked a lot about how monetary policy used to work. We haven't talked much about how how or why it maybe doesn't work anymore. You know, we also, I'm not sure how interested your uh, your listeners are in inflation, but we also didn't really kind of give us, so far, like monetary policy has just been a, you know, has been kind of the hero. Like they're the Marvel comic. The next thing it's like, you know, Captain Monetary Policy, he swings in and sort of prevents banks from collapsing. And it's, you know, it's really cool. But, you know, most of, at least my adult life as an economist, you thought more about monetary policy being, you know, the sneaky villain who like lurks behind the dark corner and then unleashes the the wrath of inflation, which will be like burning through a city and, you know, and, and sort of tearing down other buildings, just not banks. And, and so we should probably touch on that at some stage too. So the high level answer though, about, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? You know, you hear a lot of this reference to this in the press. It's a good thing if you really do believe that, you know, Hey, in an exceptional times, like during COVID, you know, with a, a Congress that was not ever going to pass any fiscal support. Remember what the other thing, you know, the other side of this equation is governments can basically spend money to support the economy. That wasn't going to happen, or it wasn't going to happen particularly as strongly as the Fed was going to worry about. And, and, and the Fed can frankly just act a lot faster because they don't need acts of Congress. So when this all first started happening, they were like, I got to act really aggressively. And the only tool I got, because interest rates are already pretty damn near zero, or actually I think they already were zero, you know, or, or close enough, take interest rates to zero, but that's not making much of a difference because they weren't very high to begin with. Um, and so now I'm just going to buy a bunch of stuff because I'm trying to flood the markets with this cash. Good thing in that, you know, maybe you got to do something. The only the only person who could really act was the Fed. You know, bad thing if you stick with it for too long, and this is what more and more folks are calling for, is just distortions in asset prices. Create asset pricing bubbles, you know, possibly be a world where you're keeping companies that don't deserve to refinance their debt alive, and they're just consuming resources from the economy that ought to be more productively deployed elsewhere. And so when you're referring to that, this is all happening before the stimulus checks, because you're saying this was before any fiscal policy to get the government's dollars out into the, Correct. the, the people's hands. Correct. Because the Fed acted much faster because it could. And then ultimately, we did see that the stimulus was much bigger than I expected. In fact, you know, in conversations back and forth with my former colleague from the, the Clinton administration and, and good friend, Dr. Dr. Doom himself, Noriel Rubini, we were kind of chatting back and forth saying, all right, how big do you think we need and how big do you think we're going to get? And as always, he was pretty much spot on. He was like, I think we need more than $2 billion. And I was like, boy, we're never going to get that, man. Um, and he was like, no, nah, I don't think we will either. But we ended up getting it. And I remember then sending him a note going, whoa, man, um, they actually did it. I was like, hmm. 
interesting. So we ended up getting a big fiscal stimulus. And one of the reasons why modern monetary theory is on everybody's mind right now is because ironically, COVID had us first do the big time monetary policy and commit to it. We're not going to change it. And then big time fiscal policy came. And fiscal policy has been on the sidelines since 2000, the wake of 2008, 2009. In fact, when Ben Bernanke created QE in the United States in 2011, quantitative easing, which was, you know, we'll get into that in more detail, it was because he was essentially pleading the way that central bankers can in a very polite and signal-oriented way for fiscal policy and nothing was happening. And so it's like, hmm, no choice but to actually create this tool, which then was used in the big bazooka way and, and to fight COVID in 2020. So because we got the monetary policy and the fiscal policy, that's kind of what MMTers or modern monetary theory folks are asking for. They're just asking for it to be integrated with fiscal policy always and everywhere being extended, spend more money by the government whenever you want to stimulate the economy and have the Fed essentially just be a passive supporting actor to just mop it all up and you know, create more money when it needs to just to finance whatever spending is, is needed to keep the economy where it is. All right, I want to tie up some loose ends, and then I want to get on to quantitative easing, modern monetary policy, and inflation. But to tie up some loose ends, what's the argument that it's a bad thing that the Fed now has all these assets on the balance sheet? And what are the assets? Like, are they buying, like, company stock? First, give some definitions, because that's the important part. You know, we haven't yet talked about, you know, in the modern days, we did actually get, you know, we got we got into the 20s or 30s and started talking, jumping right to the 2020s. This is, I warned everybody up front that, you know, maybe my my, my career trajectory sort of gives you some sense of the, uh, the ADD tendencies or preferences of my brain, but I do like to jump around. So I apologize for folks who are more linear. We could do that too. We just have to record another episode. So we are kind of in the 20s or 30s when I kind of said uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York governor kind of invented open market operations or what we now call open market operations by saying, huh, I can really increase the supply of credit or, you know, purchasing power into banks by buying government securities. Um, turns out that then sort of matured and grew into the current framework that the Fed's been using really for, you know, for as long as I can remember, probably really since the 40s or 50s by controlling interest rates. Government securities being like treasury bills? Yeah, back in the early, early days when it was done by the Fed in the in the twenties, it was government securities, so it was treasury bills, absolutely. Um, and more recently, it's been conducted, um, and by recently, I mean literally as long as I can remember. And we didn't really talk about the history of this stuff in grad school, so I don't maybe it goes all the way back to the twenties or thirties, and it evolved from there. But this is done by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York still, and something by a group called their Open Market Operations Desk. And everybody always wants to know how on earth does the Fed control interest rates. After all, if you've taken a single economics class, you know there's a supply curve, you know there's a demand curve, and the price is the where the two of them intersect. So to say you control a price is like scratching your head going, huh? You can't control a price. Not if there's a supply and demand curve. That's the result of the intersection of the supply and demand curve. And so the way that actually this works is the open markets operations folks are deeply embedded in the dealer banks that create the money markets in New York, which are all these really short-term borrowing and lending back and forth between banks. And they have a really good sense of how much banks need to actually have on hand because banks have to hold a certain percentage of their deposits in the Fed. 
And if you don't have enough deposits in the Fed, you get sort of a slap on the wrist and a penalty, and everybody's got to basically do that. And so the way that interest rates are controlled is the open markets operation desk basically puts more money into the system if it needs to actually increase the money supply to target a certain level of interest rates by not buying outright government securities all the way up until Ben Bernanke responded to the financial crisis with the first QE, they would instead buy and sell things called repos, which are weird to everybody who's never been on Wall Street. I even wrote a paper on them, published a paper on them because they're weird to me after finishing a PhD in financial economics. I still was like, how's this work again? And why does this security exist? And what a repo is, is literally it's agreement to buy or sell something and then turn around sometimes the next day and sometimes a week later, sometimes a month later, sometimes three months later, and reverse the transaction at a preset price. And so, you know, for all the way up until quantitative easing was actually introduced, the way monetary policy worked was these short-term reversible increases or decreases in money supply, because the open markets desk would go in and say, aha, the federal funds rate is getting a little bit higher than our target, shoot, we need to increase money supply to bring it back down because, you know, I don't control the rate. I actually can only control supply. That's what I do. Um, and so I'm going to now increase supply by buying a bunch of repos. And I probably have that backwards and maybe reverse repos because I always forget whose perspective the terminology <laughs> works from the feds or the, or the dealers. And what that really means is it agrees to buy a bunch of securities. So I'm taking now securities out of circulation. I'm giving money into circulation by crediting the dealer bank's account at the Fed. But I'm also at the same time saying, and I'm taking it right back. So they're fine tuning to get the interest rate they want by changing the amount of cash effectively in circulation with these short-term transactions of pulling securities in or out of the markets. And it's all going on in the money markets, which are controlling short-term interest rates. It's the federal funds rate. That's specifically what's targeted, but that's historically been very tightly related with, with LIBOR and all these other sort of indexes of short-term interest rates. So that's how monetary policy always worked. And it worked, you know, essentially, you know, that way as the ultimate evolution from what we talked about back and extending credit to, to banks to avoid bank panics. And then you get into quantitative easing. The insight there was, huh, we seem to have actually sort of given banks as much money as we can possibly give them. And it's not doing anything. They're not actually, no more loans are happening. Like nothing's really going on. And as a result, this was after 2008. So 2008, the aftermath of the financial crisis is where we got zero interest rates for the first time. And the zero interest rates was a classic, I trust we aren't sort of too regulated to say, oh shit moment um, for the part of, <laughs> all, of all, all policymakers, because you know the key sort of models underneath macroeconomic policy and monetary policy are really based on this notion that you know the way that you stimulate the economy is by lowering the interest rate. And when the interest rate gets to zero, it was like, whoo, man, I guess I remember in grad school, we all said that what mattered was the real interest rate, not the nominal interest rate. So I know, I guess we got to start some inflation. So let's see if we can kick inflation up just for the purpose of getting the real interest rate down and maybe something will happen. And the <laughs> desire to create inflation, which is kind of a bizarre thing, but you hear central bankers talking about it all the time, the desire to create inflation. Inflation is too low. Ask most American households like, 
is inflation too low bother you? They're like, no, inflation too high really bothers me. But because this is the way central bankers think is it's about getting the real interest rate lower. They're like, we got to do something. And this was back, as I alluded to, Bernanke was pleading with Congress and, you know, through the, the way that a central banker can do so through code and messaging and, and answering questions when he's hauled in front of Congress to testify um, about why on earth the, you know, sort of the monetary policy wasn't working that he had done as aggressive as it was. And he was like, let's just be clear. Monetary policy is not a panacea and it's not the right tool to fight this. What he was saying is, give me some fiscal policy, please. But when Congress turned a deaf ear, he was like, I got to do something. So I'm going to not actually tell the open markets operations desk to buy a bunch more repos, which are these short-term ways of getting money into the short-term interest rate market, because short-term interest rates were essentially already zero. He's like, I can't do anything there. Aha, I'm going to buy long-term bonds and I'm not going to buy them on repos. I'm just going to buy them outright. And that was the birth of quantitative easing in the United States. So we went and bought first only treasury securities. Ben, you started me off on this path by asking what's it buy. And it was really thought to be, to be pretty aggressive, even by American economists at the time, to even buy treasuries, because those of us who really understand how the bowels of the machine work, were like, whoa, this isn't a repo. This is now increasing the balance sheet. You know, because all of these sort of short-term transactions are what kind of kept the Fed's balance sheet, the total amount of stuff it had bought and held at around that 800 billion level for a long, long time because they're reversible. So now all of a sudden it's like it's buying stuff and that's creating extra money, which is going to flood into the markets. And heaven forbid, I mean, according to the old paradigms that Milton Friedman sort of coined as monetarism and lots of other folks had similar ideas, you know, a, a massive increase of, of the money supply always and everywhere was supposed to create inflation. So everyone's like, eh, this is going to be a little ugly. Also, is there an element of fear here too that like, you're kind of connecting your exhaust up to your intake in that like you're buying like one part of the government is buying the debt of the other part of the government, right? It is a little strange, isn't it? You know, this sort of gets back to the, you know, the fear of inflation, which is what a lot of folks were, were worried about. They're saying, hey, we've got these big, even though, you know, Bernanke and everyone else who's an economist was saying we need bigger fiscal policy. We need more aggressive support for households. You know, we need income support. We need, you know, infrastructure. We need lots of other stuff we're talking about now back then. And it just wasn't happening. So most of us who are economists said it needs to be more, but the very traditional rooted in the history of monetary policy and and economic thinking folks were very much like, oh my gosh, my central bank is supposed to be independent on purpose from the government so we can keep inflation you know, at bay. And now we've got all the biggest deficits we've seen in years and years and years. At the same time as we've got this aggressive Fed who's buying government bonds. And exactly like you said, isn't that just basically printing money and giving it to the government to spend? And the answer was, yes, it was actually. And so it certainly made a lot of folks nervous, either for inflation or, you know, a lot of a lot of economists at the time were really writing a lot. And it's amazing to me that it just stopped being a, a topic of conversation about what's the exit strategy going to look like? When Bernanke explained why what he was doing and why he was doing this, it was his, his description or his logic was as follows. It was, boy, right now everyone's afraid to take risk. Nobody wants to own stocks. Everybody wants to own safe stuff. So I'm going to go and buy up lots of the safe stuff, which are the government bonds. 
And by definition, if I'm taking literally hundreds of billions of dollars of government bonds out of circulation, then investors by definition are going to have to substitute into risky assets. Right. Because there's nothing else to buy. There's nothing else to buy. Right. So it was like, I'm going to force you into doing the thing that you don't want to do. And then by doing so, I'm going to boost asset prices. I'm going to get them up from the depths they'd fallen down to after 2008. And it worked. All of a sudden, there wasn't anything else. All the, the safe stuff's getting purchased by the Fed. We got to put our liquid investable resources into stocks and riskier stuff. They started rallying. And you know, then we've got our, you know, our sort of markets up 400% since then. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, people <laughs> 13 years later definitely bought a lot of stocks and prices of stocks definitely went up a lot, as you suggest. Did the other thing that they were trying to accomplish, which was to reduce the real interest rate, did that happen? Yes. I mean, thank you for bringing me back there. And not because it happened, but because that is one of the most pivotal parts of the story to tell. And, and I kind of uh, glossed over it at first. Remember, under, underneath all of this stuff was macroeconomic models that are the type that I learned in graduate school and that we were so proud of as economists were like, you know, secretly envious of mathematicians and physicists and everything we did and anything you published had to be turned into a mathematical model that had a formal closed form solution. And we had these elegant models and every one of the models basically said the key to getting the economy to grow is getting the interest rate down, the real interest rate down beneath what every model had a concept of, which was something which is most typically known as the neutral rate of interest. So there's a neutral rate of interest, which keeps the economy humming at just the right level to keep its resources fully occupied. When a big shock happens, all of a sudden you have a bunch of idle resources, people unemployed, factories that are closed, but bigger frictions in the economy. And so, you know, now we got to get the interest rate down. Down so we can overcome those frictions in the economy so that we can get growing again. And so Bernanke would have absolutely loved to have a world where he could have cut the nominal interest rate. And if he was able to do that, how would he have done it? If he could have reduced the nominal interest rate, if it wasn't already zero, who would he have been telling to do something differently? Oh, the, the, the Fed, the open markets desk. The open the markets desk, exactly. But since they'd already done their job and kept rates pinned straight at zero, they were offline. Nothing more they could do. And so he's like, I got to do the other thing I can do, which is go buy these securities. Maybe it will drop the long-term interest rate, which would reduce cost of capital. And I guess that's probably going to make people invest more stuff because that's what my models all say. And hopefully by investing more stuff and maybe lowering the price for consumers of buying things like cars and, you know, and other things you've got to, you've got to basically finance, then we'll get more demand. And then hopefully that'll generate some, some inflation. Restart the economy. Yeah, as soon yeah. as we restart the economy, that's going to be great. And it's going to be even better if we can generate inflation out of it. In addition to restarting the economy, because then that zero interest rate is going to turn into a minus one or a minus two, as long as I can get inflation up to about 2% again. And so then we'll be gangbusters. We'll start growing right back. Everybody will go back to work. And whew, then I can sneakily start pulling away some of the punch bowl, um, and which in this case means that all of these securities I bought and created brand new money for, and then I've got on my balance sheet, I'm going to try to give back to the market at some stage when the market's not paying attention. 
And so that actually is what the Bernanke more or less tried to do by very casually referencing the fact that at some stage it would be appropriate to taper the purchase of bonds after the first sort of giant sort of open-ended QE was launched in, in 2011. And if you guys remember, I don't know if, if tech folks were paying attention. I was paying attention because running a hedge fund at the time, but there was this, this thing called the taper tantrum, which I thought was very cleverly termed. And it was a big deal for anybody trading liquid securities, especially government treasuries. It created a huge crash of the bond markets um, in a short period of time. And all of a sudden, everyone who was paying attention, which was mostly folks who had a background in economics like me who were sitting on Wall Street, were like, oh gosh, it's not going to be that easy to get out of this QE thing, is it? This is not even the Fed trying to sell all no, these- No, this was just slowing its purchases. Wow. Which I'm sure Bernanke at the time was thinking, I mean, he's a very precise man, incredibly smart. Also, as any central banker is keenly aware that every one of his words is scrutinized, even in Q&A, which is when he mentioned this. So I have no doubt he was very deliberate about thinking, you know, this is a concept that's going to be safe. I'm just going to be talking about slowing my purchase. I'm not talking about you know, stopping, I'm slowing them, and I'm sure not talking about selling the stuff that I actually own. And that was enough to make markets get really scared really quickly. Interesting. So this was like a a little preview of, you know, the sort of episodes we've had in the past, you know, 12 months here where when Jerome Powell, you know, makes some sort of offhanded comment somewhere and then the markets crash because they're like, oh, well, <laughs> good times are coming to an end. You are 100% right. And in fact, there have been a couple of other episodes since the original taper tantrum where and Jerome Powell early in his tenure, I remember thinking, okay, new sheriff in town. This guy's not a trained economist. Maybe he's going to be more focused on asset price stability and avoiding bubbles and all the, you know, the downside. Ben, you asked a lot earlier about, you know, about what's the downside side of this, the downside of the Fed owning a bunch of stuff and now having, you know, having more than six times the amount of, of, of stuff on its balance sheet that it ever held before 2008. Um, the downside of that is asset price bubbles and financial instability. So I thought, here's Powell, not an economist. He's going to have real world market sensitivities and he's going to talk tough. And he did talk tough. And I was like, yes, I was helping build a, an internal investment office for a large a nonprofit at the time. And I chose to do a hedge fund thing while I was managing money for them, which isn't probably a good idea in retrospect, which is like, I went really short duration. That means like, you know, well, underneath the targeted amount of bonds we held in our portfolio because I was like, yes, he's going to actual taper and he's going to cut off the QE supply and it's going to be beautiful. And so I don't want sort of be holding a bunch of bonds when interest rates go up and, and their value goes down. And I was very well compensated for that decision for a short period of time until he then said, ooh, things are getting a little too scary and markets actually had taken the nosedive that they did and all of a sudden he decided to, no, no, we're backing off. We're okay. And then they went right back in the other direction. Good times. Like, Keep on rolling, baby. <laughs> yep. Wow. Which is also the hilarity of the meme of the never going to give you up Rick Roll. <laughs> <laughs> it's completely come back to that one. I mean, boy, it's exactly what's uh, what's going on, I think, right now. Well, so one question that I would have like the rat brain question is, well, how on earth are we going to stop buying all this stuff? Is the Fed going to stop buying all this stuff and actually start selling some of it? But I think the second order question is, is this okay? Like, can we exist indefinitely with the Fed being large or getting larger and larger? 
It's a wonderful question. And in fact, it probably gives us a good excuse to go back and talk about why it is that people are afraid that an increase in money supply creates inflation. And let's let's start actually in the simple way of the way that economists have always thinking thought about it, and frankly still do in a way that I think is probably wrong, which is just about goods market inflation, goods and services. So like the inflation of the stuff we buy. Let's hold aside the asset price inflation for a second. From the point of view of old time monetary policy, and remember, let's just go back to that sort of bank centered world where you know, the world was really simple, and you know, the people, the the things that people used to buy stuff, either was money they held in banks or in their pockets or money they could borrow from banks. In that world, it was pretty darn dangerous that if you basically, you know, sort of doubled the money supply, in this case, we've quadrupled it or quintupled it. If you doubled it back then, that would have been pretty scary. It would have been pretty scary for pretty straightforward reasons. I mean, just the high level intuition of at any given time, there's only so much stuff an economy can make. Right. So like imagine a, a sort of simple world, you know, sort of to play this out in kind of a toy example. Imagine a simple world in which there's a thousand dollars worth of goods and services that are provided by a basic economy every, you know, every year. And in turn, there are a thousand dollars worth of, you know, either dollars in circulations or people who've got deposits in banks. And kind of that world, then we've got a situation where even if the Fed were to introduce an additional hundred dollars into the system, by say going, hey, Ben's Bank, you know, Ben Banking Incorporated, I'm going to give you an additional $100 to lend out. And you're like, well, that's great. I'm going to lend it then. And so you lend it to, you know, to David. And David basically says, cool, I got 100 bucks. And he deposits it in another bank. And the other bank's, cool, I got 100 bucks new deposits. I'm going to put $10 in the Fed and I'm going to take $90 and I'm going to lend it to Matt. And Matt goes, cool, I got a, I got 90 bucks. I take it to a bank, says, cool, keeps $9 with the Fed and it just keeps going again and again and again. And this is the, the classic sort of money multiplier idea that, that everyone probably heard of if you had a first course in finance and that underpins the velocity of money. And in that sort of world, you know, in a, in even a $100 increase in the money supply would translate into an additional because of this sort of this circular logic of everybody's loan becomes somebody else's deposit, which is more loans. And in that world, suddenly our economy that started off only having $1,000 of purchasing power has $2,000 of purchasing power. And the price of everything as a result would double. Right. Because right? there's still the same amount of goods that are being there's created. still the same amount of stuff. Before it cost $1,000 for everything, now there's $2,000, so it's going to cost $2,000 for everything. In a way, that the analog I always think of, and this is imperfect, but it's like dilution. Lots of our listeners are very familiar with owning shares of a company. Imagine if they just said, now there's twice as many shares. Like You're like, shoot, my share of this company is actually worth half of what it used to be now. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's diluting the currency and it's diluting the currency by raising the price of goods. And what a currency is good for is actually buying goods. So it's like, shoot, now any unit of currency is only going to give me half as many goods as it used to. And so that's the, the sort of dominant fear of when we increase money supply is that's going to happen. But an interesting thought experiment is, well, when would that not happen? Any thoughts there? play the old Professor McBrady gig? I mean, if we were producing goods at a much more rapid pace than ever before, if the economic growth in terms of production of goods actually outpaced the amount of new money that we're introducing in, 
Ben was definitely the student who sat in the front row and always had the right answer, wasn't he? Was that it's, right or uh, wrong? Because I could also see it being a very confident wrong answer. No, no, no. That was actually, that's a very good one. And in fact, you you explained it in the way that that's one of the most key economic concepts to introduce into the whole conversation, which is productivity. So if you've got the same number of folks, and even if everybody already had a job to begin with, if suddenly we could have this, this wonderful shock that they made everybody twice as productive and they could make twice as many goods, then you would actually need that money supply to accommodate the increased production because it's really hard for prices to go down. That's one of the key ideas beneath all these models they taught me in grad school. It's really hard for prices to go down for a whole bunch of reasons that have been modeled a lot of different ways. At the very least, it seems like supply chain. Like you can't start charging less for your stuff until your whole supply chain is charging less to you. Great, great example. Great real world example. All of, you know, the ones in grad school are always much more stylized about like, people's <laughs> behavior and real prices and a lot of other stuff that makes, you know, I told you all this whole thing about complex stuff, simple, simple stuff, complex. <laughs> Complex. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, productivity growth is one great example. And can you think? There's only one other big canonical one. Is what's the other reason that that, that you know could have been true in the economy? Well, the, the economy only thing is- I could think of is if there's other places to put your money. And it siphons out, like you go invest in emerging economies or other kind of or whatever. Yeah, so you can invest it. So we're going to go back into the asset markets. But if we wanted to literally just come up with a world where you could buy just goods, how could you do that without necessarily kind of increasing prices? number of participants in the system, like population? Yes, yes. And the participants in the system who wouldn't be making anything the first time around would be considered the the opposite of the folks who have a job. Oh, uh, you're talking about uh, essentially creating a welfare state. Creating jobs. Like ultimately, if there's a bunch of unemployed people and factories closed and you did that same that same right. judo. I guess, yeah, one way would be to just like create a welfare state. The other would be like, well, we're just going to create jobs. Yeah, yeah, ultimately. And, and the purchasing power itself created by this additional money. You know, remember this example started off with, you know, with a thousand, you know, a thousand dollars and a thousand dollars worth of goods and services bought. You know, it's very natural for all of us to kind of go back and think, well, that probably just means everybody was working in the economy to produce those thousand dollars. But what if you have this chronically unemployed or underemployed set of folks who could go back to work and make stuff and, and factories that aren't at full capacity if only someone had had the darn purchasing power to purchase what it is they would make, then voila, this is not going to create inflation. This is going to create additional jobs and this is going to create additional factory utilization. And maybe it'll even spur some folks like Ben Inc.'s widget company, or it's the podcast producing, you know, like we're (laughs) doing so well on this, we're going to hire a couple of other radio voices. Maybe we'll get McBrady to do a side podcast on random (laughs) economic stuff and uh, whatever else is on his mind in a day. And, you know, all of a sudden that increases productivity. So the same people, you guys can suddenly have a bigger empire of podcasts that you're doing. I see. So it's increasing the productivity per person and also increasing the number of people who can be productive. Yes, yes. So now we've actually kind of gotten like fully up to speed in terms of the current state of the art thinking. So one of the reasons why fiscal policy has been so much on the sidelines for the last 20, 30, 40 years, really. And fiscal policy for laymen's like me being that Congress is not passing acts saying yes. we're going to go give yes. money to people. Congress is not saying boy, the unemployment rate's too high. I think we should either cut taxes or we should start you know, a welfare program, a jobs program, or we should just spend more money, like build more roads, build more bridges. That'll put people to work who are unemployed. The reason we're not doing that is because there has been this dominant belief 
um, which is supported by all of these models they taught me in grad school, that monetary policy works really well because it's all about purchasing power. If we can just create the purchasing power, which by definition in this old world where it was banks who are responsible for it, goes by just getting more money into banks, then you don't have to really mess with fiscal policy. And fiscal policy can really just be kind of scary. And we had that scare when Lyndon Johnson's Great Society in the 70s led to the huge inflation that we got toward the end of the 70s and into the early 80s when Paul Volcker became you know, a hero of, of economic conservatives by going, nope, I'm going to raise the heck out of interest rates, pulling all this money out of the system, pulling purchasing power out, and stopping inflation dead in its tracks. And that was kind of when Milton Friedman as well was at the height of his influence with his monetary, his, his theory of monetarism, which is basically kind of said, if you double the, the money supply, you're going to double price level, period. Back to that original world where you know, got everybody in full employment and you're making $1,000 worth of stuff. If you suddenly tinker with monetary policy and you get $2,000 worth of purchasing power, you're going to get the same stuff for $2,000 instead of one. That was exactly the way the world sort of thought of things until we got to 2008. And 2008, the gigantic kaboom that brought interest rates down to zero and brought, <laughs> brought honest policymakers and academics to their knees in their oh shit moment of going, what else are we going to do? Then is where you know Ben Bernanke, given his studies as, a, as an early academic of the Great Depression, was like, we got to do something. So he did a whole bunch of somethings. It would be another great podcast episode to support the banking system to keep it from collapsing because it wasn't really the old school banks. It wasn't, you know, Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. It was these newfangled securitization-driven banks that nobody really understood, but Ben had the right folks around him, particularly Tim Geithner, by the way, who was playing a key role in all of that as the head of the, the New York Fed. So figured out how to keep the banking system stable, but still it was like, man, I can't get interest rates lower because they're at zero. I got no inflation and inflation's going down and I'm afraid of deflation, which means even with zero interest rates, we're going to get a positive real rate and that's going to stink just given the way that the old models make everybody think about it. So what am I going to do? I'm going to print up billions and billions and billions of dollars and I'm going to buy government bonds with them. So this takes us back to the question, is it a bad thing? that the Fed owns a whole bunch of assets. Yes, this is so many wonderful, rich ways to kind of answer this question. And I'll start off with the Fed's description of why it's a good thing, because they're doing it. So that's probably a fair place to start. And the sensitivities of the Fed are still very much calibrated to these models. Um, and like the Fed literally has a model. It has a model of the neutral rate of, of interest that's required to keep the economy humming at full employment. So it actually has that physically. And folks talk about they don't trust it as much as they used to, but they still look at it because it's the intellectual superstructure that underpins all of what they do. So And, and do you know like literally how this model manifests? Is it like an Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> that's a great question. I got to find somebody like, and never mind, buddies have been in the Fed. I need to ask them. It's like, do you at least have it in like some kind of cool technology, like underlying technology, or is it literally in the spreadsheet? That we the as an <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, but the thinking is so driven by, you know, the, okay, we've got to get the interest rates down. And right in a world where the interest rate is at stuck at zero and inflation is really low, then you know we're you know we've got real interest rates as low as we can get them in the U.S. and real interest rates are really really low. I mean they're minus one at you know between minus one and minus two even at the cash level and and 
you know, sort of around there, even as you go further out the maturity structure. In that world, when the Fed is saying there is still these chronically underemployed or unemployed or underemployed people, my mandate from Congress when I was created, that means the Fed, I got to act according to what my mandate is, is to pursue the twin goals of full employment and inflation at a target of 2% give or take. And remember, this this targeting of inflation is just fascinating because, again, most of us think of it as a bad thing. And for the Fed, it's a good thing. And it's a good thing because the higher, you know, the, the right level of inflation means you get real interest rates where you want them. And you certainly don't want inflation of zero or deflation because that creates a whole bunch of bad stuff if it's deflation. Even if it's zero, then you don't have extra room to play with in terms of nominal rates if you can only get nominal rates down to zero. So given that mandate, the Fed basically feels like it has no choice other than to continue its QE. It's like just like Bernanke's original logic of saying, boy, in the wake of 2008 and I'm not getting the fiscal policy that I want, I got to do this QE because what the heck else am I going to do? And I can't do nothing. Now the Fed's basically still, Jerome Powell's Fed, still kind of using the same logic of going, I've got unprecedented aggressive fiscal policy and government spending, and yet we still don't have full employment, or yet I'm still believing there's enough reason to, you know, be afraid we are not getting to full employment that, you know, we can't take the, the foot off the accelerator. And my personal view is that they'd probably feel differently if there wasn't such unfortunately well-precedented challenges that await markets when you start to taper QE purchases. So I think there's a good deal of just realistic fear on the part of the Fed that they don't want to be seen to trigger a market correction, right, as we're not quite where they want to be. And so they're sort of walking a bit of a tightrope of saying, all right, our, our public statement is we will start to pull back our support as soon as we have sustained progress toward full employment. And with, you know, with today's jobs release, it's kind of hard for me to believe they're not thinking of it as that's sustained progress, but you know, so far, you know, so far there's no public statements. Using employment as the right measure. I, I don't know what the right measure is, but I just think about like, <laughs> you know, we all live in the tech industry. And like in a world where, you know, Instagram gets bought for a billion dollars and probably was worth many, many billions more at acquisition and had 13 employees, like <laughs> that's like different than Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> at some point, the, the models have to change because you can't make the assumption that all labor is approximately equal because it's becoming more and more unequal with the lever of technology where some labor is able to produce an outcome of real value for consumers that is like a hundred million X someone else's labor. And Ben, that's actually an incredibly astute observation. Again, like the, uh, the kid in the front row getting all the right answers. <laughs> Thanks to David for the layup. Uh, to, to a level of depth you might not even realize, one of the real, real challenges going on right now is well, with today's action, we did manage to get to a reasonable 5.3 formal unemployment rate. But one of the things that's guiding the Fed, which has always guided Janet Yellen's thinking back since, since way back in the late 90s when, when I had the privilege of working for her, is the recognition that there are these category of chronically unemployed folks who don't get counted in the traditional unemployment statistics because they're not actively seeking 
searching for work. They're either discouraged because they've been trying and trying and trying and they can't get the right job, or maybe they have the wrong skills, or maybe basically they just they just sort of are sick of it. Um, but these are the folks who are not showing up because you see our, our labor force participation is relatively low. So what the Fed's looking to do is to pull these people back into the economy. And what we see is unprecedented levels of job openings right now and still a lot of unemployed, chronically unemployed people. So that sort of tells us exactly, you know, that your, your intuition is exactly right. I think we're struggling right now with a challenge of the chronically unemployed or underemployed just don't have the skill set to fill the jobs that are available. I actually don't know how I would show up in the uh, Fed statistics right now, <laughs> but I assume that, you know, not like a lot of people, but they're like, I'm being like objectively, like very productive. Like I now I like acquired is my full-time thing. You know, I've got this fund on this, like objectively, my productivity is higher than it's ever been. And yet I am not employed in any traditional sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of poor, I mean, this is one of the things that, that, that David, a great, you know, great call there too. So you're sitting next to Ben in the front row. That's one of the things that, that, that a lot of folks are talking about as well. And I think with good cause, which is I probably would be counted as unemployed as well at this stage. And it's like, well, no, most of us actually who've got the skills that, that are being prized the most now get the privilege of doing stuff we enjoy, which means we don't have a formal employer and a W2. And I think that's one of the challenges. And and that actually brings us back, David, to your observation that, you know, that was a great one, which is like, boy, you know, that's all well and good sort of thinking about inflation and goods and services and other stuff. But, you know, how about this crazy world in tech where, you know, where 13 people can be bought for a billion and probably in today's prices would be worth 20 or 30 times that, you know, that's that key observation is also the, you know, the, the sort of key to answering Ben's question about the downside of QE. So what's the downside of QE? Remember going all the way back to 2011 when, when Bernanke created open-ended QE for the first time in American history and started buying bonds outright and increasing the, the Fed balance sheet and putting money into the system as a result for the first time. The whole logic was not to boost asset play prices, it was the logic was I need to basically do something and I'm hoping to create inflation in goods prices. So that way the macro models that, you know, that run the Fed are going to tell me the economy is going to grow faster and create more jobs. It just hasn't happened. So it hasn't happened that lower interest rates have actually generated robust growth. But what has happened was, remember, going back to when I said how Bernanke described what he was doing quantitative easing for in the first place, he's going, I'm going to do this forced substitution of risk assets, risky assets for safe assets. I'm going to buy up all the treasuries. And then by definition, you know, in the aggregate, investors are going to have to hold more risky stuff. So it wasn't just Bernanke doing this in 2011. We've been doing this for 10 years now to the tune. Remember, go back to there was $800 billion of stuff the Fed owned forever and ever and ever. And actually less than that, if you went further back, no higher than $800 billion in, in 2008. And right now, right now, the balance sheet is, you guys got any, any guesses at all? I'm reading it right from the, uh, the Federal Reserve's website. $2.5 trillion. 2.5 trillion. Boy, that sounds like a lot. Um, David, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to guess 6 trillion. That's a, that's, you're getting warmer. <laughs> 8.22 trillion. Okay. So this is, uh, this What's is the as US of, GDP. Ah, uh, good question. Um, let me actually first answer this one, which is <laughs> before 2008, the 8.22 trillion versus 
versus uh let's go to the very beginning of yes january 7th of 2008 880 billion so we are just under 10 times the size of the balance sheet. And remember, this happened by creating money that never before existed and using it to buy financial assets. Don't you think it stands to reason that that would correspond with a world where financial assets writ large went up in value totally. a lot. <laughs> Supply and demand, right? <laughs> Just like if we were buying goods and we could only do a thousand dollars worth of, you know, worth of goods and you suddenly had two thousand dollars worth of purchasing power. How about financial securities and 10 times the purchasing power? And by analogy to what we talked about before, that was also a world where you could create more, you know, more jobs, maybe you could create more productivity. So certainly there's been a proliferation of securities, especially private securities. Ben and David, when you guys met at Madrona, what was the what was a what was a large size venture fund back then? <laughs> 250 million? Yeah, the standard sure. large venture fund was 250 million. Yeah. How, what's what's a large venture fund now? <laughs> One and a half billion. One and a half billion. Didn't Sequoia boys two point five trillion or something like that? No. The their global growth fund is twelve billion. I thought I read somebody had raised like a two billion, two and a half billion dollar fund. Oh, there are plenty of them. Yeah. Plenty of them. And Andreessen Horowitz, I think, just raised two point two billion across a couple of funds. Uh, they just raised a two point two billion dollar crypto fund just for crypto. Wow! So let's actually tie this back to uh, so uh, big fund used to be two hundred fifty million. <laughs> now big fund is two point five billion. Boy, that's ten times, isn't it? Yep. Yep. <laughs> huh? Eight hundred eighty billion dollars in the Fed's balance sheet. Eight point eight trillion. Hmm. hmm. What was the most valuable company in the world worth in January of two thousand and eight? That's a Fantastic question. That was probably Exxon. I'm guessing it was Exxon or JP Morgan. Yeah, that's actually probably worth worth trying to take a, a quick gander because it'd be fun to have on the show and see where it is now compared to the trillion dollar, you know, the is Apple's the biggest now, right? Yeah. It well, was it depends on the day. End of two thousand seven, Exxon Mobil, four hundred and seventy two billion dollar market cap. Apple today is 2.4 trillion so, so we're, we've seen a 5x five, six, six, in yeah. in what what a large company is worth or the largest company is worth yep yep so a 5x in the largest company and probably if you kind of go all right we go back to the simple logic of if you got 10 times the amount of stuff that's been purchasing assets where are the rest where's the rest gone well some of it goes overseas to david's observation before can you invest in emerging markets and others some has gone to actually creating more more businesses, no doubt, certainly a lot more startups. And a lot of that's getting soaked up into valuations that are incredibly big for two guys, a cute dog and a good pitch book. Fascinating. And of course, the, the Apple thing, the Apple versus Exxon thing is a little farcical because I think both the margin profile and the growth rate of the big $2 trillion companies today is far superior to what the Exxons of the world would have been in 2007, 2008. So it makes sense that you know, it's not all multiple expansion, I guess. Yeah, is what it's I'm not saying. all multiple expansion. Yeah. And the thing that just drives me a little bit crazy, but it's, you know, I guess it's, it's not fair. I mean, people who have my kind of unique and crazy background, it, and some of the stuff just seems pretty obvious to me, but we see that multiples are as high as they've ever been. Um, and a lot of folks are like, boy, are they going to have to go down? You know, or are they overvalued? It's, it's just really hard for me to not look at the, the basics of the underlying system and go, when you got 10 times the amount of money that you've ever had before, and it's had no choice, but to be 
be created specifically to purchase assets. That's got to be a world in which asset prices are going to be higher than they otherwise would be. In a way, that the analogy is that like, if you think about the market sometimes acting as a weighing machine and sometimes acting as a voting machine, it's in hardcore voting machine mode because the prices of assets are determined by the supply-demand equation of the amount of money available to purchase the assets, not at all and at all in quotes, let's try and weigh the some of the future cash flows of this company. Yeah, I mean, and Ben, and this morning was a great example of that. As soon as the, the employment report was released, um, we saw futures take a dive. And you kind of go, wait a second, if this was, was an adding machine, it'd be like, great, more people are employed. That means more purchasing power. That means more cash flows. That means higher value for a business because it's the present discounted value of cash flows. Um, and instead, it's like, nope, this is voting machine. And the voting machine in this case is going, oh, boy. That means a quicker pulling away of the punch bowl and less and less, you know, an end of you know, beginning of tapering, maybe eventually an end where we pull money out of the system and then valuations are going to go down. And so we're in this weird looking glass world where bad is good and good is bad for, you know, for markets where it's like anything suggesting the economy is growing really well is, is, is being perceived as short term bad for, you know. <laughs> Don't take my opioids away. I'm healing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I got this has been awesome, by the way. Like this is like oh, such a good primer. I'm I'm so much more educated than I was before. I have two areas I'm curious your thoughts on that are both sort of in a like where do we go from here? Uh, different approaches to like where do we go from here? Or are there analogs? One is you mentioned Japan earlier, and that Japan has had similar policies for longer I'm, I'm curious what's happened there and if it's any sort of indication of where we might be going and then the other part i really want your opinion on is crypto land <laughs> to the extent you have opinions yeah I'll, I'll give you only sort of partially informed opinions on crypto but in the japan we can definitely take on i mean japan one of the things that folks don't realize was ben bernanke is rightfully given credit for doing something very bold and in the scope of the alternatives that could happen after 2008 i think history will look back on him very kindly for being willing to do something nobody else could, stretching the rules of the Fed to, you know, to be able to do the stuff that he did. And there really was no other choice. I'm not so sure about subsequent Fed shares, to be honest. And you know, I think we get a lot of evidence for that just for the fact that you know, Japan in, in 1980s, Japan was gangbusters. It's when they was killing the US automobile industry and you know, lots of knock-on consequences, even for my hometown, where they shut down a GM plant that employed most of my friends' dads and probably why I became an economist going, huh, why is that big building with all the cool, and people used to go to work now empty. Um, but Japan basically after its, its big booming, booming 80s created an asset price surge for all the right reasons. It wasn't monetary policy driven, but it was just speculative sort of fervor around real estate prices and everything else. And they got a big crash at the end of it. And then the 90s have been looked at as their the lost decade because, you know, the, uh, the topics only recently got you know, back to where it was at the end of the 80s. And the economy has just been sclerotic since. So Japan spent most of the, you know, most of the, the 1990s getting interest rates down to zero. And then in 2000 was the first place to basically do QE going, okay, I'm going to print a bunch of money. I'm going to buy a whole bunch of bonds. Um, and then in 2006, they gave up on it. They're like, it hasn't really changed. 
you know, there's a lot of debate about whether, you know, whether it worked or whether what other things that didn't work. And, you know, my general sense of my peers in the economics profession is they're so reluctant to give up their models of how the economy works that says, you know, interest rates are what matter. And lots of these other kinds of things that, you know, the economy should really grow absent some other reason that they invented in the case of, of Japan, a more convenient excuse for why it didn't work. It wasn't just that, you know, QE ultimately is just not that effective at creating growth. Um, instead, they're like, oh, this is about the Japanese, the, the inflexible Japanese labor markets. There's lifetime employment and still at least the vestiges of it. And it's hard to fire workers. And so banks will sort of extend credit to bad companies still, even though they're not supposed to, because nobody's supposed to kind of lose any jobs. And it's this big sort of rigid, inflexible economy. So you hear that a lot among economists. It's like they are, they're calling for, and you hear it from the IMF and the World Bank a lot, talking to developing countries too. You know, you need a more flexible um, labor market. You, you've got structural rigidities in your in your economy. And to me, those are kind of like boogeymen under the bed usually. It's like, well, what do you really mean? Um, and are, do we have some good case examples of someone who's not growing, who then says, you know what, I'm going to make it easier to fire people. And suddenly that creates gangbusters growth in the economy. If so, I mean, I haven't been an academic for a long time. Maybe somebody's written that paper, but if so, I haven't seen it. So, you know, when I take a look at, at Japan, I sort of look at the example of Japan as saying, don't rely on this too long because ultimately it doesn't work. It may have bad consequences, including sort of creating 10 times bigger venture funds and five times bigger largest companies in the markets. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing yet, but it's not a good thing from the point of view of you know income and wealth distribution for sure. And instead, you better come up with something else. And you know that to some degree, this is what Larry Summers is, is really using as a way of championing and recreating you know an old idea called secular stagnation that you know he's attributing to somebody else but he's really the one getting folks to pay attention to it which is to say there just seems to be something about advanced economies now where we just are able to produce a lot more stuff than there's demand to buy. And that creates a world where there isn't much inflation and in which if there is this neutral rate of interest, it's really, really low. And so in that world, monetary policy itself probably isn't going to work the old school way. And QE probably is doing nothing. And if it's doing anything, it's literally just raising asset prices, which is kind of exacerbating the problem. It's creating a bunch more wealth for wealthy people who are not spending it because they they already got more money than they can spend. And the folks who are unemployed or underemployed, it's it's really never getting to them. So, you know, he's been calling for fiscal policy, you know, and sort of gets into the really wonkiness of, you know, all the models I've referred to and kind of lampooned a bit along the way about sort of saying these kind of these rigidities and frictions that mean, you know, there's this natural rate of interest. And if you get the interest rate lower than the natural rate, the economy grows. That's all stuff that's thought of as in the tradition and as the, the legacy of the tradition of of. Keynes. That's all called New Keynesian economics, or used to be called New Keynesian economics. And, uh, and Larry's now calling for an old Keynesian economics by way of saying, if you go back and read Keynes, it wasn't about sort of models that the Fed uses of, you know, money supply and demand and these ISLM curves and lots of other stuff. He was just talking about animal spirits. Like the economy grows when there's animal spirits where, you know, where investors are just confident they're going to make money and there's demand out there. And so, you know, he's kind of saying, we need to actually start taking seriously this basic idea that if, that if the economy is not growing fast enough, 
you just spur demand. You spur demand with government spending. Like, like that's fiscal policy, not monetary policy. And ironically, you know, I probably the only person who would say this, and I'm not sure I would actually. I don't think Larry would admit it, you know, to me. I mean, we have, haven't been in close contact for years, so he'd probably say, yeah, "You look familiar, but do I do I still know you?" But I don't think he'd admit it to me or anybody else. But frankly, I think he's taking a lot of the modern monetary theory ideas and or at least insights, and he's dressing them up in much more palatable old language because the, the secular stagnation was an idea created by another Harvard economist, which is, uh, which is something that Larry is pretty fond of pointing out. But the basic idea is, huh, we're probably in a new world where this old paradigm of monetary policy is the cure to all lack of demand by creating more purchasing power through the banking system. And well, maybe now we're fudging a little bit, say not through the banking system because interest rates are already zero, so we're going to create it through QE. But it's the same general intellectual architecture of saying monetary policy is your solution. And he's going, no, it's probably increasing demand. If there's not enough people with jobs and there's not enough economic growth, get the government to spend money. And that's obviously kind of you know, where the MMT folks come in and where the, the Congress is currently pursuing policies too. It is totally fascinating that I feel like I've been personally on this journey of trying to understand how the Fed works and how our economy works. And it's slightly discomforting, Matt, to have you on the show and have you tell me, even if you understood this as well as the best economists in the world, that may actually not be the right thing for our world as it exists today. Like we may yeah. need a new system. I mean, Ben, I think you're crystallizing things exactly the way that, that I would. And, you know, and one of the reasons why I think we really are sticking to the same old tools is because it's kind of terrifying. Imagine sitting in Jerome Powell's seat. I mean, he's not a trained economist, so maybe easier for him than others, but he's a heck of an economist because he picked it up. But, you know, or Janet Yellen's seat where it's like, boy, or, you know, even Paul Krugman, who likes to pick fights with the MMTers because he, you know, he got a Nobel Prize for being like one of the pillars of this modern, of this new Keynesian type thinking where it's like building the models that kind of explain how everything works and it's hard to let go of them and it's impossible to really imagine the stress of making you know multi-billion dollar decisions that have a huge impact on global markets and people's lives without some some intellectual framework but but it is pretty intriguing um, you know and I, I kind of take it back to one of my favorite experiences from grad school you know I love the early macro classes before I kind of got skeptical that that they mapped on the real world at all and and what I really loved was Greg Mankiw who became the uh, the chairman of Council of Economic advisors for, for George Bush started our macro class by saying, my goal is to profoundly confuse you. Um, <laughs> and then everybody giggled. And he said, now let's unpack that a little bit. I said specifically profoundly confused. I don't want you to be confused because you're asleep or you drank too much or because I'm doing a bad job explaining something. That would not be profound confusion. My goal is to inform you of what the key insights were at such a fundamental level that you will come away from the class profoundly grappling with the questions that we really can't answer. And this was this was back in 94, where you know the folks who really knew even back then were aware of the limitations of the models. And you know, I would say we've all lost a lot of confidence in them since. And you know, and I've actually I took a lot of solace in the fact that I've been saying this for years, but I've been saying it for years as a guy who's almost an armchair economist now because I haven't been a proper economist for so long and I've been tainted by the markets the way everybody else has. And the, the market talks 
talking heads. The folks who call themselves economists usually don't have PhDs and, you know, they're just basically, you know, kind of selling research reports. It's cool. It's a good job. They enjoy it. But, you know, to see Larry Summers himself starting to kind of challenge the Fed a bit and saying, it's maybe time for us to acknowledge that our fundamental models are, you know, are not really going to be instructive in the future. They're not, they're not working the way they used to and neither is policy. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess my goal in coming on talking to you guys could have been said to do the same thing that, that Greg Mankiw did to me, which is to profoundly confuse all of your listeners. If you could leave listeners with one or two things that sort of keep an eye on this, what would those things be? Like tangible things folks can take away and, and potentially use in their own lives. You know, one of the most, one of just the, in terms of the things to, to keep an eye on is, especially if you're thinking about, you know, moving mean, meaningful amounts of your, you know, your financial wealth into, you know, into out of stock markets. I mean, it's really tough to time markets. So first of all, I would tell everybody, don't do it. I've tried and it's been a disaster. And I used to do this for a living. I fortunately didn't do it. And I wouldn't have lasted very long as a hedge fund manager if I tried to do any kind of market timing strategies because of my own personal efforts to do so have been terrible. But if you've got some like liquidity event or something like that, I would caution folks to put available cash that isn't yet deployed in large way into markets before we get some type of resolution on, you know, on what's going to happen with tapering. Because we now are in a world where with today's employment report, unless unless Delta really shuts things down again, we're going to be in a world where the Fed's going to have to stop its exceptional support. Because, you know, for one of the things I'm surprised nobody's talking about more is we, we started QE in this country when Bernanke made a plea to Congress effectively in one of his testimonies for fiscal policy, and they turned a deaf ear. I was like, I got to do this. I've got to do this because it's never been done before. Not clear what the consequences are going to be. There isn't research to back this up because it's not the way we've used to do it, but we're going to do it. We're now in a world where we've got the biggest fiscal policy response anybody's seen since the New Deal. You can't say there is now time to justify ongoing exceptional monetary support. You just can't. And so, you know, and so ultimately, even if we aren't in a world where the Fed ever tries to shrink its balance sheet back down, and I don't think it really ever will, we're in a world where they're at least going to have to stop and turn off this current spigot. And we haven't seen every time that's been tried so far, it's been bad for markets to the tune of, you know, 10 to 15 and in one case, 20% kind of market correction inside of a month. So, you know, just wouldn't want anybody to be in a world where knowing that's likely to come given everything we know by November and possibly as early as September, that's, you know, that's one to, to kind of keep in mind. Um, you know, that's, you know, so, so that's certainly one, you know, one kind of key takeaway. Um, and the second actually would be anybody who's politically motivated, much more important, politically motivated. If you still, you know, sort of are clinging to the belief somehow that government deficits are bad and they're going to crowd out, you know, private investment or they're going to raise interest rates, recognize that the economists who wrote those models with one of the best ones in, in history, actually, frankly, being Larry Summers, are now saying, hmm, maybe not. Um, and these folks who, you know, the modern monetary theory folks who, you know, kind of sound like they're making the claim that you can have your cake and eat it too. There's some reasonable reasons to believe that they're right across a number of dimensions. And, and you know, not for everyone, but for the United States, we're in a pretty unique position. So I would sort of encourage you to, you know, to sort of be, from a political point of view, much more open-minded to the idea that, you know, large-scale government spending if we're lucky enough to be the United States right now at this point in time is probably not a bad thing. Um, 
and you, know, you have to, in a sense, sort of check at the door some of the sensitivities you'd be running if you were thinking about the economy the way you'd think about running a small family business. Well, Matt, this has been just awesome. David and I will put a link in the show notes to the best way to reach out to Matt if you want to work with him in some capacity or uh, the, there's, a, there's a reason to follow up. Matt, the, the pleasure is all ours and, and we really appreciate it. Oh, guys, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. I mean, I, I don't tire of talking about this stuff. In fact, I tired a lot of, of having a hedge fund job that didn't give me an opportunity to talk about this stuff. So, <laughs> um, so it's been, it's been a blast. And if you guys would like to have me back to talk about anything else, please just let me know. Will do. All right, listeners, we will see you next time. We'll see you next time.